Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And it's Valentine's weekend, so we saw it happened one night. 85th anniversary. 85th anniversary. 85. Can you imagine getting to 85? <laughs> no, actually I can't. No. <laughs> we saw it at the Electric, which is having it. It was it's va- it, literally a Valentine's weekend um, thing, so everyone in, the, everyone in the screen was a couple. Except us. Do you think they thought we were a couple? I don't think so. You never know. <laughs> well, we remember like when I went to see when I went to see film stars don't die in Liverpool, which is about a guy my age who falls in love with a woman the age of all the women who were there. Yes, and it must look like I was trying to pick someone up, which I was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, 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 yeah. So it happened one night. Uh, uh, pre-code nineteen thirty-four uh, comedy, slightly screwball, romantic. Not slightly, a screwball comedy from. Uh, Frank Capra, uh, which is kind of seen as one of a series of films that originated the genre, really, you know, so... Well, that's why I say slightly, like, I don't think you start off as full Screwball, Screwball really developed, but this has got elements, I think. Well, she jumps off a ship... Yeah, that's what I mean, it's got elements, but I don't think it's, yeah, it's not the same as, like, um... Catherine Hepburn and Bring Up Baby Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, she's still a Harris, you know, she's still very rich... She's a screwy dame, to use the parlance of the 1930s. He's a man of the people, and she's one of the very rich, and he's behaving, you know, the way that, again, by 1930s conventions, a normal person would. After all, it's Clark Gable being Clark Gable, you know, being fantastic being Clark Gable. Um, You know, and, you know, she is the rich daddy's girl who has always been used to getting what she wants I and mean, she's a screwball dame mm. so um but anyway let's not pick on this because you know the film is so interesting and i think so great you know because it brings so many elements together so i think it is a screwball comedy it's a romantic comedy it's a very romantic comedy um it's also a road movie Right, so it's a film in which kind of two people for different reasons go on the road and they get transformed by it, right? And in this case, they get transformed into a couple, amongst uh, other things. Um, and I also think it's one of the great democratic films of American cinema. You know, it's kind of, I mean, there are moments that I just find like extraordinarily touching moments of community. The film is set at almost the worst moment of the depression. So if the worst moment was 1933, the film is 1934, right? And it's kind of showing images of, you know, hobos on trains and, you know, people fainting from hunger and yeah, all of those elements really. And yet kind of, you know, everyone's on the make. So, you know, people aren't above stealing, right? But on the other hand, everyone is also helpful. You know, the scene on the bus, I think is a scene that really evokes that sense of of we the people, you know, kind of as one, um, you know. The, the scene you're thinking of is where he takes the piss out of the conductor, right? And it makes everyone laugh. No, the scene I'm thinking oh. of is the, the the daring young man in the flying trapeze. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with the song, yeah. right? And everybody takes turns singing and, you know, kind of, yeah, they're, everyone is so transported by that moment that the the conductor ends up driving everyone into a ditch yeah. really and you know and the woman the mother faints from hunger because 
you know, her husband is out trying to get a job in New York and they can't let that possibility go, but they have no money to eat, mm. right? I mean, it's just full of beautiful things like that, I think. Yeah, well, the reason that the scene that I mentioned struck me, which it did, which is which is right at the start, he's trying to get the seat at the back of the bus. Yes. And there's all these newspapers there, so he chucks them out, ends up in an argument with the conductor, and the conductor just says... Oh yeah, and that's his only comeback, and he keeps on mocking him for for only having that comeback. And eventually, everyone on the bus laughs. Yes. And it just struck me that you know you never see how often do you see someone make someone else laugh in a yes. film? It doesn't happen. It tends to be people are just making jokes for the audience. You'd never see that often, which I think is great. And you see it in here, and it's just so kind of liberating when everyone laughs at the guy together. Yes, um, there, there are many moments like that. I think it's a really beautifully written film. So um, the script is by Robert Riskin who's, you know, a, a long-time collaborator of Frank Capra's and really one of the great screenwriters. And from the very beginning, kind of, you know, you have this marvelous setup, right? Like, you know, Ellie, played by Claudia Colbert, is um, being imprisoned in a yacht. You know, her father doesn't want her to... Uh, her father's trying to annul the marriage that she's already made. And, you know, so she runs off uh, uh, she swims off the yacht and, you know, to kind of reach her lover. And that's the whole thing. So that's the premise of the film, that she's going out to reach the man she's married and and wants to stay married too, in, in spite of the father's protestations. And in fact, during the course of the trip, she ends up falling for someone else. Yeah. Um, and there's a real kind of... Um, so if the film is a romantic comedy and it's a screwball and it's also a, a road movie... It's, it is also, I think, a film about re class reconciliation. You know, so at the, at the very end, like a working man and uh, um, an, a, a rich millionaires end up kind of, you know, forming the couple and thus kind of dissolving all of those, you know, great barriers. Breaking down the walls of Jericho. Breaking down the walls of Jericho. Yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, cinematically. It's a beautifully written film. The whole Walls of Jericho thing is just fantastic. It's a nice touch. Uh, it's, a it's, nice sort of, it's a nice running sort of... It's sort a structuring of, thing yeah. in the film. And it also kind of speaks of both a desire and a kind of a respect. You know, so one of the things that are, is very difficult now uh, in terms of watching the film are, you know, the gender aspects, right? I'm going to sock you, he pats her in the ass... Right, kind of, you know, so I, there's, there is a kind of a threat of violence and that, you know, women are used to violence and that violence is a part of every marriage. There, there, you know, there's a kind of a set of assumptions there. But on the other hand, you know, the thing about the walls of Jericho speak a difference, right? He respects those boundaries. He won't compromise her, right? Kind of, yeah, he waits until, yeah, kind of the marriage. Mind you, I mean, if place. I was thinking that the first scene that they, um, that they share room in, so the, the the title makes no sense. It says it happened one night, and actually it happens over about a week. Yes, you know, which is quite annoying. But um, so the, uh, the, it's the second night they spend together because the first is on the bus, um, and then when they get that place, they get this sort of little motel, motel, that's it. Um, uh, and they put up the the blanket between them, even though he is you know kind of being respectful and whatever, and he hasn't really tried anything on with her. Um, I was thinking like if I was her, I'd be very nervous because he's he's just a little bit of a creep. 
Like when she wakes up on him on the on the bus, he's let her fall asleep on him, and he's just looking at her when she wakes up, and then he says, "You look quite pretty there when you were asleep." I was like, "Jesus." Well, I uh, no time for different, but that's still creepy. I don't know. I don't it's think, not as creepy well, as the other guy I who they make a point of him. The, the guy on the bus really trying to pick her up. Yeah, he's a lech. Exactly. And he's a liar and he's married. I think kind of you're meant to read um, Clark Gable as just a man, you know, like a, a hot-blooded heterosexual man, right? But he's respectful, you know. He actually, all those things that she thinks, and she is nervous and she's very, yeah, are actually kind of things that he might also be thinking but there's certainly no danger of him acting on them, mm. which is what makes the film palatable. Yeah, yeah. But it still, it still struck me. I mean, she, she says this is the first time I've been alone with a man in a room. Do you know this is the first time I've been alone with a man in a room? He right. go, that should be, you should be more nervous. I think. Is that he, what he said? Yeah, she says that. She says it's the first time that that first night. No, in no. Hotel. But is that what his response? Oh no, no. That's what I was thinking. He, she should be more nervous. Oh. But why should she be nervous? I mean, you know, my God. She doesn't know him. She doesn't know his name until they turn the lights out. Uh, I'm just saying. I mean, there goes every convention of romantic comedy. (laughs) In fact, cinema. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the film is like, it is like a kind of, it's like an extended meet-cute in a way. Like, the thing that, what you probably expect a little more from a uh, really generic romantic comedy is the meet cues and then they keep bumping into each other for whatever reason. And in this, they are, to get, as you said, it's a road movie. They are together the whole time and then it's over the course of being together every minute that, um, that the kind of relationship develops. The film works out ways of bringing them together. In fact, you know, from the first meeting, she's separate. She sits in a different seat, right? And actually, they're brought back together, yeah. right? So, you know, kind of... Um, I, I love the way that the screenwriters have worked out all those elements of bringing them together. So in order for them, you know, to be together in the same hotel, someone's got to have stolen the, her bag, right? And they make it funny because she's very uppity about it. She doesn't mm. kind of recognize the effort that Clark Gable has expanded on trying to rescue her, right? So kind of when she does end up having to share the room with him because they have no money... You also are on his side, I think. It's, yeah. a, it's her comeuppance for being so snooty, you know, and, and for feeling that she's got all this privilege and acting as if she's got all this privilege. This is your first time watching it. Yeah, yeah, I've never yeah. seen it. Um, I, I, I remember watching it on television as a child and kind of... And it's amazing that this film, which I've now seen so many times, it still works, and it still works on every level. And it's got so many scenes that are real like treasures really you know so i think for example the hitchhiking scene is mm. fantastic right you know the first night in the um uh a motel is fantastic um the scene with his editor is fantastic the way that the film organizes so that each of the stars gets a star entrance i've never really noticed it before but of course you know she jumps off the yacht right but the way that you're introduced to him is, you know, there's someone in a phone booth that's drawing all this attention. There's like, you know, eight people or a dozen or you know, there's a lot of people around this booth listening in on the conversation. And then, of course, the camera cuts and it's Clark Gable. Right? Yeah. You know, it's a fantastic kind of presentation of a star. Um, so I think the film is almost perfect, really. That hitchhiking scene is great and uh, reminds me. I like the twist. I mean, it's, I guess it's a little bit predictable. You know that he's going to. He's very confident about hitchhiking. Completely fails to pick a car up, and the first time she goes out, she shows a bit of leg and mm. she gets a car. 
and it reminded me of um, reminded me of the similar scene in Rush, where uh, they're hitchhiking on the side of the road in, in Italy. He tries he tries hitchhiking and gets nowhere. She says, "I know what I'm doing," and she sort of stands quite coquettishly and sticks her thumb out, and the car stops. Mm. She's look how great I am, no. and then the guys in the car go straight past her and go to him because he's just started driving for Ferrari and he's a huge star to them. And like, so I like the, I like the twist in them, the joke in them, yes. which is what this scene gives you. And then what it and then what it follows it up with is the guys picking them up won't stop singing, and he really belts and he gives it some, and it's hilarious because it's. Did you recognise who that was? No, I don't know who it is. Alan Hale. You remember, oh. like uh, when we saw Robin Hood, that was little. Little, little John. Little John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and actually, it, yeah. you know, he features in a whole bunch of films with uh, with Errol Flynn. And he's fantastic with his singing in this. You he's know. great. Well, I love it. it. He goes so much further than you kind of think he will. And that's what makes it so funny. He keeps on going. And he, sing, and he sings quite nicely as well. Yes. But he just, he's so loud. Yes. <laughs> and he's so kind of, he's not tuneless, but he doesn't really have a melody. He's just making it up as he goes along and enjoying yes. himself. And also that's compounded with the fact that Clark Gable is... He, he's actually quite hurt because he's failed to pick the car up. And you can tell his masculinity's kind of been yes. uh, trampled on a bit there. Um, and and then you've got Claudette Colbert sitting next to him, smiling. Like she couldn't be happier with the way things have turned out. I know, but actually I think his dialogue after that is also kind of very interesting. And I think you know, might have spoken the audience's mind because, you know, he tells her, oh, you know, why not take all your clothes off and then you can have 40 cars stop for you, right? <laughs> like, I, you know, that there's something kind of indecent to, you know, to sell yourself in that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually the film is kind of full of hints of morality. Yeah, it goes out of its way to make these two very decent people, you know. Mm. Uh, um, so, for example, there's all the conversation about the hotels. Oh, I don't, you know, I don't want people like you here. I run a decent place, not aware that actually nothing has happened, right? Like, yeah, kind of. Mm. There's all these little intimations of, you know, what is proper behavior of a man and a woman? You know, what is decency? Kind of, you know, what is what is morality? Morality is not to take a 10,000 pound a $10,000 reward. It's, you know... To Just get you $38.60. Yeah, but it's a point of principle to get your expenses, right? Like, yeah. kind of... A whole bunch of things like that. I thought... And also, of, I guess that kind of speaks to some degree um, what you're saying about the d- democracy of showing... You know, it's a road trip through the kind of South and through a lot of poor areas. And at yes. the time, that, uh, during the Depression, we're going through real hardship. And, um, and, and you do the whole thing of, you know, the proprietors of the hotel saying... You know, we're not happy with this. Whatever's been going on there, you've got a thing about queuing up for the shower. Yeah, you've got little little things like that. That's just like no matter what, everyone still has their manners about them. <laughs> yes, and actually, she doesn't. She, I mean, that's the whole joke of the sort of or the, the point of the the shower scene is that she doesn't know that you're supposed to queue up. Yeah, and anyone else does. That's right, and she doesn't understand that not every bus will wait for her. Yes, right, and actually, it's a very it's a very interesting film because it is the height of the depression. So, you know, you could have been very nasty about these rich people, but actually the film is not, right? Whilst really putting its lot in with the poor people, you know? Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, so, so it's, it's, um, it's a very conciliatory film, you know, whilst being very democratic. It's the Green Book of its day. Oh, please. <laughs> actually. It's a, it's, a, it's a road movie, and it turns out 
rich people and poor people can learn to get along. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you know, there's just one black person in the film. Yeah. And it's a very stereotypical kind of black person. So actually, you know, but I don't, I, I almost don't, of course, lucky me not to have to make too much of it. But I almost don't want to make too much of it because, you know, all the other elements of the film kind of work so well. So the two things that really kind of made me a bit uneasy, you know, was, you know, the role. Well, but it is role playing as well. Yeah, the role playing. I'm going to sock you. Mm. Right. That kind of thing. But which kind of indicates how common that was. Right. Like and certainly the other people's reaction. Oh, just another married couple. Right. Yeah. A newly married couple. Yeah, but, you know, that, that kind of uh, violence was just taken for granted. Um, and also, there is a complete absence of black people until one moment in the film where this very jolly, you know, b- black man says, you know, says, coffee, boiling hot, blah, blah, yeah. yeah. But that's so in that kind of slightly minstrel man- manner, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and he's a, and he's got a shot. It's about a three-second shot, and yeah. he's gone. And, but then that's that, the that only black it. person that I, is it, yeah. you know... So, um, but I like, I like the, th- you know, what we now call the 30s aspect of it, right? You know, the hard-boiled talk, the lack of sentimentality, you know, the newspaper milieu, you know, and the way that the story and the story that debunks the rich and so on is considered to be important, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, I mean, there's also, so there's always something very romantic about, you know, that kind of depiction of the press, right? Kind of, you're out for the story, the story will make you know, will sell papers, but you're also kind of trying to uncover, and it'll sell papers because you're trying to uncover muck, uh, yeah. you know. Um, so, um, yeah, kind of, you know, I, I loved it. And and there are a few little touches, like the gathering of the carrots at night, you know, the making of a bed from the haystacks, the way that Claudette Colbert's eyes, you know, light up in the dark, right? You know, mm-hmm. when they're in the room. I think, you know, those are all lovely lovely things you know it kind of it's 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 deservedly a classic it won all the oscars Best it was the first yeah, first to get all five big ones right until uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah I was the, right. the the one uh that won all major awards thereafter yeah so best picture best director best actor best actress and best adapted screenplay yeah science of lambs is the other one that's right yeah so only three yeah. So, um, and the film was was a sleeper hit, and actually, there's a there's a a very very um, legendary story around it, really. So, what happened was MGM wanted to punish Clark Gable. So, you know, Capra had written this film, which was a, a bus picture, and there were many, ostensibly many bus pictures at the moment, and you know, they weren't making any money, you know. But kind of uh, Frank Capra had written it; they liked liked it, and then they couldn't get any leads. So the only reason why they got Clark Gable was because MGM wanted to punish Clark Gable. And basically they got Claudette Colbert because everybody else had turned him down. And she had a window of four weeks in which she could make a movie outside of her Paramount contract. And she charged what was then a fortune to be in it, I think $50,000. And then um, the film, what happened with the film is that it was released. And then it it wasn't really a success. It was a mild, yeah, it played for a week. And then it's, a, it's one of those films that the audience made it a success. Mm. You know, so kind of they began to hear that in small towns across America, you know, it had been it playing over or, 
you know, kind of it had been re-requested and right. And then it worked its way back to the metropolis as well. So, you know, it was an enormous kind of smash, but it didn't start off as such. It kind of, you know, it got it got the Columbia picture, you know, release schedule and then it found its way with the audience. And, and actually that is something that ended up shaming MGM and thus kind of part of the reason why they never loaned him out again ever in his whole career at MGM. <laughs> What else was it up against, I wonder, in the Oscars that that year? Outstanding production. Uh, so it won. It was up against The Barracks of Wimpole Street, Cleopatra, Flirtation Walk, The Gay Divorcee, Here Comes the Navy, The House of Rothschild, Imitation of Life, One Night of Love, The Thin Man, uh, Viva Via, and The White Parade. Hmm. Deserving winner? <laughs> For sure. But also it's interesting that there are three other... It was up against three other Claude Colbert films. So Cleopatra... Imitation of Life. Imitation of Life was another one. Um, actually, I'm not sure whether... The, so it might just be those three. Anyway, interesting that three Claude Colbert films are up for the Oscar in the same year. So that kind of indicates, you know, yeah. how big she was at that moment, really. There were only three nominees for director. Capra, uh, Victor Schertzinger, and uh, W.S. Van Dyke. Right. And only three nom- nominees for Best Actor. What were they doing back then? That they could only have three. That surprises me. Clark Gable, say. Frank Morgan for The Affairs of Cellini, and William Powell for The Thin Man. Huh. Yeah, so there you go. Anyway. It's lovely. and um, It's lovely. I enjoyed it very much. I liked, I, I suppose I also liked how much it kind of... Uh, I, I like how you saw, once they got back to New York and... Because she thinks he's absconded to get the reward. That's, that's right. right. Whereas actually he's gone to try and get money to marry her. Marry, that's right. So she goes and and then goes off to reconcile and remarry the uh, the Aerogyro Air, bloke. But the, but she's unhappy about it, you know. And um, and obviously he's very unhappy because then he's sort of lost her. And when they sort of split, you actually get quite a little bit of time to sort of live with their unhappiness. Yes. Which I really like. And and it kind of, I suppose, it, it's... Um, it then helps to build towards the, the more romantic reconciliation rise at the end. And what I liked about the reconciliation at the end is that I was expecting a close-up of the newly married couple, right? So you have the scene with the father, you have the scene with the newspaper man, you know, you have the scene with the motel owners, mm. right? And so on. And actually, you, you hear the music, right? Yeah. But you see the light go off. Yeah, you see the blanket of the walls of Jericho go down, but you never get a close up of you never get a uh, you never cut back to the protagonist. Do you actually see the blanket go down? I thought you stayed outside the house right at the end. I don't remember. No, well you I think Do you I, see it hit the floor? I think you do. I thought I thought you just saw it from the perspective of the motel owners right there saying no. they wanted a rope and a blanket for some reason. Yeah, yeah. And a trumpet. I think you then do see a oh. shot of the blanket on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and because the music—that's when you hear the music, ta da ta. Yeah, um, but but you never cut back to. Yeah, you never see them. Yeah, which I thought was actually kind of quite amazing because the cliche or the standard way of doing it mm. is you now you cut to their faces or something, or you cut to a two shot of them together or something. Yeah, but actually it ends without a return to the couple. Well, it uses the running structure that it's had of them spending the night together. Yes. Um, to 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 do that and the light the. The light flicking off in the motel is really lovely. Mm. Mm. It's it's the template for 
for a whole genre. So, for example, you can't think of Julia Roberts' Runaway Bride. I mean, the you know, the whole film is based on, yeah, kind of uh, this uh, a trope that was developed in this film. Yeah, Claude Colbert is about to get married. She runs away, right? You know, kind of. Mm. The Runaway Bride, 70 years later with Julia Roberts, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's historically a very important film for many reasons. But actually, you know, what we just discovered is how enjoyable it is to watch now. Uh, the audience applauded at the end, really. Um, you know, and there was like, at the beginning, there was just a little bit of a plot, like, Kind of, you know, you got the feeling that people were thinking, oh, I want to applaud, but should I, should I? And then actually kind of when the lights came up, everybody applauded. And I thought, did they? You know, yeah, they did. Uh, so, and I think that's a testament to the film's enduring power. I'd say the one thing that I did hear was the people sitting next to us, and I agreed with them. When he's getting undressed the first time, and he's describing the way a man takes off his clothes, everyone does it differently. And then he says, according to Hoyle, the trousers should come off next. But he says, actually, what I'm going to do is take off my shoes. And I could, and the people sitting next to you, and I agree with them, were going, why isn't he already taking off his shoes? Did people take off their shoes after their trousers in those days? I, I think that's a, a flaw with the film. You take off your shoes first. You should have taken off before his shirt. Who takes off their shoes last? Who cares? I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying the film's trying to make a joke out of it, and it's logically implausible. So there you go. The um, historically significant thing about that scene is that Clark Gable taking a shirt off made um, the undershirt industry collapse. <laughs> Did it? Yes. Really? Yes. You know. <laughs> no, well, you know, kind of. I mean, people say it's a myth or whatever, and but actually there's been stuff writing about, you know, how it did affect that industry because, you know, Clark Gable took a shirt off and there was no undershirt. And everyone said, I look just like well, that fat slob. I well, can do if Clark Gable doesn't wear one, why do I need to? You know? Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> he's, he's a fat slob with no regard for his own... Look at him, chubby bastard. Uh, you wouldn't get away with that these days. Uh, You'd have to look like Zac Efron now. I thought he looked terrific. <laughs> uh, so anyway, there you go. Well, frankly, my dear, I couldn't give a fuck. That's his line. All right, we, we better wrap up, yeah? Kind mm. of. Um, it's a wonderful film. It's a classic. It really holds up. Uh, and, you know, it's very funny. And the audience laughed in all the right places. It does hold up, doesn't it? And actually, it made me think right at the start, because really, they were just showing a Blu-ray, right? Um, or that's what it appeared to be. You know, this wasn't anything special. They didn't get a print in or anything. No. Um, they were just showing a, a Blu-ray. And... Um, so I kind of thought, like, what, what, are we paying £12 for this? Because we're sitting in the front row, which is where I intend to sit from now on at the electric because it's just better there. Mm. The seats are nicer. Um, but, I, you know, but you are kind of thinking, like, we could have just watched it here. You know, why? why? But actually, the kind of the lights go down, the film comes up, and you go, what I'm paying for, really, is to be in a room with other people and to not be let out. You know, the film, well, it is, it, as we've said before, it's always a different experience. And even though they were just showing a Blu-ray, it was worth £12 to see it in the cinema, I think. Yeah, I kind of, I did wonder if it was a Blu-ray or if it was a DCP, but it, it, it actually... I assumed, well, I don't know, it, I assumed it was a Blu-ray. Yeah. It didn't look great quality, let's put it that way. No, it didn't. You know, so... Um, and it has undergone restoration. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, they paid attention to it, so I don't know... I don't know how, how good it has 
looked in any of its restorations. I don't know which one this one would have been. Hmm. But anyway. Um, it didn't look restored. Um, just to quibble, there were, you know, so even the greatest films are not perfect. And I think there were two moments here where I thought, that's a really bad cut. Okay. You know, um, there's a moment where she's just about to jump off the ship, really, which is like a really brutal cut. Like, I think I know the one you mean. Um, and then there was the moment where he's about to unzip his pants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you go from him beginning the action to like this really brutal cut where, you know, he's back with his hand on the zip, but now it's in a medium long shot. Right, and kind of the cuts. You've were never just... quibbled out continuity before. <laughs> well, you know, the things one observes. It seemed very clumsy, rough cuts. I think much of the much of the editing was pretty nice, actually, in that kind of invisible classic Hollywood sort of style cutting on an action. Well, that's why these two things stood and the, out. And there were little bits that stood out, but it wasn't like it didn't kind of strike me down with the kind of beauty of the imagery, like something like Casablanca. Okay, well. You know, I know Casablanca I mean, is ten years old. In that now. in that respect, maybe. But for example, when you when you see again to return to the flying trapeze number, mm. you know the combination of what's in long shot, right? Where you when they first begin to sing, and it's the performer who's at the center of the frame, and then your eye catches Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable on the side, right? So, you know they're part of the group, and then as the song unfolds, you have them kind of clearly framed in a two shot as a couple. You know, kind of the way that that scene unfolds is just absolutely brilliant, brilliant filmmaking. Okay. You know, so it's nothing showy. It's not like a, an odd angle or anything, but it's just like a perfect expression. You know. Mm. It's nice. It's worth looking at. Yeah. You can see. You can see why people still like it, and it holds up. And love it's it. a... they love it. They love it. No, check. <laughs> check. <laughs> They like it plenty. They love it. They like it. It's all right. So uh, um, thank you very much for listening. Do make an effort to see it if you can. It's the 85th anniversary of the film. uh, And it's a film that's not only for Valentine's Day. Yeah, it happened four nights. They should have called it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. We are on Uh, iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube. And on social media, um, Facebook and Twitter, at Eavesdrop Movies. And the web uh, website is eavesdroppingatmovies.com. Thank you. Cheerio. <laughs>